Thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray that today we would see Jesus for who he is and his worthiness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. You can go ahead and be seated. Welcome to New Life. And if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles as we study God's word to Matthew chapter number two. Matthew chapter two. And we are in our second week of a sermon series that we're calling A New King in Town. We are seeing the arrival of Jesus Christ to be our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're seeing throughout this series what it means for Jesus to be King in our everyday lives and how it changes everything. I'm, I, I so enjoyed our study last week of how Jesus is the King of our plans, or at least he should be, and today we're going to see what it means for Jesus to be the king of my kingdom. If you have a Bible, we're going to be walking through Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have one today, you can follow along on the screen, and if you would like a Bible, if you don't have one, but you would like one, please just let us know after the service. We would be honored to get you your own copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. It says, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor or a ruler that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. How many of you, whenever you were maybe a little younger, had a parent say to you, I hope that you have kids and I hope when they grow up, they turn out, you get one that turns out like you. How many of you have had that before? I'm getting like right off the, that was me. I'm just curious, parents in the room, how many of you have said that to your kids? Like, I hope that whenever you have kids someday that they turn out like you. Well, my parents never said that to my face, but I'm sure they must have cursed me with that behind my back. Because Witten, uh, man, he is like, he got a double portion of something. Whenever Adrian and I started dating, I was given a hard time pretty quickly 
and it's something that I, I guess I battle with a little bit. I am a little bit more of the possessive, jealous type. Uh, I remember one particular day, I just like, I came across, um, Adriana had some like real, like, uh, I don't even know how I saw it. I promise I wasn't snooping. I promise I wasn't snooping. Uh, so, but I saw like, I saw some emails from an old boyfriend and, uh, Man, I, I just realized, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm a little bit more of the possessive type, and I'm pretty jealous. And went and got that to an extreme. I got He got it to an extreme. So Adrienne and I, whenever we're sitting together, you know, we'll be, we'll be on the couch. If I have my arm wrapped around Adrienne and we're watching a movie or something, this is going to happen. Like, just guaranteed, this will happen. Uh, we'll be sitting there enjoying our time together, sitting on the couch, and then all of a sudden, Whitson is just going to walk up, and he's going he's gonna to be so cute, and he's going to be so, he's just going to be so sweet, and he's going to walk up, and then he's going to like, he's going to start, he's going to start climbing, and he's going to really sneakily, he's going he's gonna to come up, and he's going to sit by Adriana, and then another minute later, he's going to be wedging himself, wedging himself between us, and then uh, another minute or two later, I'm going to have diaper in my face, pushing me away from Adriana because that is his mommy, and he is going to sit with her. Went and got like he got a double portion uh, of what I got. And I like the way that that Jaden says it, the way that Uncle Jaden says it. He says it's Wit's world. We're all just living in it. Uh, that's the way that wit is. And you know, whenever it comes to this idea of, hey, this is, this is mine, this, is, uh, this belongs to me, I'm the, I'm the king of this castle, this is my house, that's kind of the way wit is. And you know, I think that whenever we look at scripture, what we find is that, to an extent, uh, that is given to us by God. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 that God said, let us make man, let us make mankind in in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, let them have rule, let them have authority over, uh, he says, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over over the cattle, over the creeping things, over everything that creeps upon the earth. Here's when God made mankind, one of the things that he gave to them was he gave to them some what we would call sovereignty. He gave them some authority. He gave them responsibility. In fact, whenever God made mankind, in turn, when God uh, made you, he made you to do a couple of things. He made you want to, to know God. He made you to enjoy a relationship with him. Uh, he, he made you to experience his love and kindness and his fatherly heart. Uh, he made you to represent him. We were made in the, in the image of God. We were made as his, to be his representatives. And we were made to rule under the authority of God. And of course, if you know uh, the first couple of chapters of the Bible, it doesn't take very long before mankind decides, you know what, I like this authority thing. I like this ruling thing. My problem is, is that I don't want God to be the ruler above me. Uh, Whenever they were tempted in the garden, Satan said to them, hey, if you eat of the fruit of this tree in the garden, then you will be like God. You will know what God knows. You You will have no need for him. So I believe with all my heart that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree in the garden, that it wasn't just some like, hey, I like, hey, this is a cool looking fruit. I think I'm going to eat it. It was a God, I don't need you. I can be I can be my own 
God. I can be my own Lord. I, I want to know what you know because I don't want to need you. We were created with the, uh, we were created for a purpose of having some authority, but it was all meant to be under the umbrella of God's good authority. And today I would submit to you that you have a, a kingdom. You have a kingdom. For, for the language of today's message, you have a kingdom. You have some things that have been entrusted to your care. The Bible says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So therefore, if you are in the room and you're married, your marriage is a gift from God that you it is kind of your little, your little kingdom that you have responsibility for. If you have a job in the room, you have that job as a, as a gift from God. Uh, to steward, you have a responsibility over those things. The, you have a you have a little kingdom where you work. You have a, a little king. If you're a parent, you have a little kingdom and and little subjects. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you you have some you have some things that are in your control that are given to you as a as a stewardship from God. And today, as we look into the text, what I want you to get, what I believe that God intends for us to get from this message is that, that from this text is that, hey, hey, you were created to have some authority over some things, but that's all under the umbrella of God's eternal kingdom. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew introduces us, and really in this text, the, the big picture, the big purpose of this text is to show this is that there are multiple royal figures. There are two types of royal figures in our text that come into come against the reality of King Jesus. One king is going to respond in a way of rebellion, and the other royal characters are going to respond in submission. My hope for you today from this text is that you'll see the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is, and then you'll put your kingdom through the filter of his. So let's get started together. Matthew chapter 2, and look with me in verse number 1. It says, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so here's character number 1, here's Jesus, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So as we get started studying this text, we see that there are, there are these characters. There's Jesus, and we'll talk more about him uh, as the message goes throughout. And then there's these other two human characters. There's Herod the king, or Herod the great. And then there's these characters, the wise men, or uh, the magi. So as we get started, I want you to know, and, and by the way, when you study the word of God for yourself, you should be asking the questions of, hey, who are the characters in this text? What, what do I need to know about them? So when you study for yourself, that's a question you should be asking. And here in the text, as we look, we see this Herod the king, and we see these wise men. So who are they? And, and what I would say to you is this, as we get started in who they are, I would say this to you, that, that God, has, here's the lesson, God has given you your kingdom for a reason. God has given you your kingdom, wherever you, wherever you serve, wherever, whoever your family is, wherever you work, God has given you that for a reason. Let's talk about these characters. First of all, there is Herod the king. In history, he was also known as Herod the Great. And something that's really interesting about him is that he is the first 
king of the Jews that Israel has had in 500 years. You remember in our, in our family tree series how, how Israel was having king after king after king. There were some good kings in Judah and there were some bad kings, but whenever they got taken to Babylon, there were no more, there were no more kings. And now about 500 years has taken place since Jeconiah was king. And now there is this Herod, the king of the Jews. Now here's some really interesting things about him. Number one is he's not actually Jewish. He's not, he's not actually Jewish. So he's the king of the Jews, but he's not <coughs> Jewish. He's actually what we would call an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. And the reason why he became the king of the Jews is because he was actually a really good politician. He is this, he's this Edomite, and he actually gets un, into Rome's good graces, where Rome sets him up, and the, and the Romans say, hey, Herod, you are going to be the king of the Jews. And he really takes that to heart. He gets really excited about being called the king of the Jews. And he starts putting things into work. And actually, he did a lot of great things. He did some really, really interesting things. So, for example, one of the things that he did was whenever he became the king of the Jews, he decided, hey, you know what? I want to get into the Jewish people's good graces. So he actually married into a Jewish family. He said, I'm going to learn their culture. I'm going to uh, learn what makes them tick. I want to get into their good graces. So he marries a Jewish woman, and then he starts learning about their culture, and he starts learning about their religion, and he actually starts working to reconstruct, he starts working to build up the, their temple. So he starts building a temple, he's making it beautiful, his desire is that it would be just as great or greater than Solomon's temple, that's what he wants to do. He's saying, hey, I want to serve these people, so I'm going to build up this, I'm going to build up this great temple. Something else that he does is in seasons of hardship in Israel's history, he actually was quite generous to them. So, for example, one of the things that Herod the Great did was during a really tough season, whenever everyone was in a financially difficult season, he actually gave them back their taxes. How many of you would say, hey, you know what? I wouldn't mind if the government did that for me. Give me back some of my taxes. But that's what, that's what Herod did. On another point, I thought that this one was really cool. At another point, there was a famine in Israel for three years. And the people that were really, really poor, they, they, they couldn't eat. So actually, something that Herod did is he went through his palace and he found lots of gold in the palace. And he started melting it down. And he melted down the golden plates and the golden furnishings in the temple. He melted it down and then he sold it so that he could feed the poor. That was Herod the Great. So I would say to you, whenever, whenever you have your kingdom, and we have this guy who whenever he's first placed into power, he's not placed into power because he was born Jewish. He wasn't placed into power because uh, he, was, he was just, Israel said, we want him to be our king. He was given it, he, that was given to him for a reason. That's Herod the Great. But the next group of people that we see is that there are, go back to verse number one, sorry, uh, Trent, uh, there are these wise men or the magi. Now, here's some things that are really interesting about these wise men. There's so much, there's actually so much legend with the Magi, uh, with, with the wise men, that most people actually think that there were, just let me ask you, how many wise men were there? Three. We don't know. We don't know how many there are. Look at the text with me. It says, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem. When you read it throughout the text, it doesn't actually say how many wise men there are. Most people think that there were three, 
because they gave three gifts. They gave three gifts. And throughout history, there's been all different kinds of legends of who they are and who their names were. And some people say one's name was Casper, and the other one's name was Balthazar, and the other one's name was, I can't even remember the third guy's name. Uh, but they have all these legends about who they are and where they were from and all these cool backstories. And actually, so my mom is Puerto Rican, and it, it, for those of you who come from a more Spanish, uh, from a Spanish background, how many of you celebrate Three Wise Kings Day? I'm just curious. There, there's a couple of people in here, you celebrate Three Wise, Three Wise Kings Day. Um, so, but it's this big celebration that happens on January 6th, and it's kind of like a, a second Christmas that, uh, that, that a lot of Hispanic people celebrate, Three Wise Kings Day, and you put out, I guess, in a shoebox, you put like uh, grass for the camels, for the wise men's camels to come <coughs> eat, and then there's, there's gifts, and I'm like, hey, if there's more gifts for me, bring on the Three Wise Kings Day. Uh, but there's lots of legend about them, and while we don't know really anything about these specific wise men in the text, what we do know from history is that the Magi were, um, really their history goes back about 700 years. Uh, so we don't know anything about these specific men, but here's what we do know, is that the Magi really start showing up in history um, about 700 years earlier in a place called Babylon. Now, if you've heard uh, some of my messages at the end of the last series, if you heard Ty and Trent preach, uh, then you're a little bit familiar, you're probably familiar with, with Babylon and with Persia. And the Magi were the wise men in the temp were the wise men in the palace, who, if you're familiar with the with the passage where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he wants wise men to come interpret his dream. Say, and he says, hey, tell me what I dreamed. Tell me what the meaning of my dream was. The, mag the wise men, the, the magi, could not interpret his dream. So Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them because they couldn't do their job. And then Daniel comes along the scene and he says, hey, God will give me the interpretation of your dream. Don't kill these magi. Don't kill these men. Hey, God will give you the interpretation of your dream. So Daniel steps up to the plate, and on the Magi's behalf, he interprets the dream, and he spares their lives. Whenever you read the book of Daniel, you can read about Daniel's, Daniel's character and how people looked to Daniel. And in fact, Daniel was a major influence in, in Persia, and then Esther after him. Uh, Esther was a major influence in Persia uh, to where really all, where Babylon and Persia, they were familiar with the God of Israel. So these magi, it's believed that these magi, this group of people, started studying uh, the Old Testament prophecies. They started studying Daniel's writings. They wanted to learn uh, about. Uh, they wanted to learn about this uh, this God. And in fact, there was a belief that developed around the world. Like this is common. Uh, I don't have their names in front of me, but there are two Roman historians and one Jewish historian that write about how throughout the world there was a belief that there would be a ruler who would come out of Judah and would establish a universal kingdom. This, this belief, this looking for Jesus, would develop around the world through the influence of, through people like Daniel and through people like Esther, who we've studied, uh, people like Daniel, who we studied uh, a few weeks back. And these magi, while we don't know for certain uh, what what we know about these magi is where they come from is they come from people who were influenced by God's people. So here they are, and they are looking for King Jesus. Here's something else that you need to know about these magi before we continue on 
is that the Magi, one of their primary responsibilities in Persia was to train, to teach, and to anoint kings. So in Persia, if a, if a, if a king was going to, be, if a Persian was going to become king, they had to study under the Magi, they had to go through training by the Magi, and then the Magi are actually the ones who crowned the Persian king. So whenever the Magi, when the wise men show up to give Jesus these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they're just, they're doing their job. So here's who these people are. And what we see from both of them is God placed, I believe with all my heart, God placed Herod the king where he did for a reason, to serve the people of Judah. God placed the Magi where they were at for a reason, to anoint kings. And can I tell you today that God has placed you where he has placed you. God has given you what he has given you for a reason, to be used for his honor and for his glory. So we see that these people are placed here providentially. None of them really make sense in the text, uh, but they're here and they were placed there by God. And you were placed where you, have, where you are by God. They're there for a reason. But then I would also say that my kingdom and your kingdom is given to you for a season. It's given to you for a reason, and it's given to you for a season. Let's continue with the text. In verse number two, it's saying, uh, it says, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. This is really cool. That word saying there, that, what that word, the, the idea of that word means that they were saying this everywhere. They're going all over town. They're going all over Jerusalem, saying to everybody, hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Hey, have you guys seen him? We, we have traveled from the east. We've traveled, it's believed, 800 miles. So they traveled for 40 days thereabouts to get to Jerusalem, saying, hey, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And whenever they come asking this question, it is a reminder that Herod's kingdom and their royal responsibilities were there to exist for a season. For a season. Why? Because whenever they're asking this question, they're saying, where is he that is what's the next word? Born. Born. Was Herod born king of the Jews? No. No, that means that he's he's like a substitute. Right. He, he's not legitimate. He doesn't, that's not, that's not where he's supposed to be. But the one who is born king of the Jews He's the one who has the right to rule and reign. And then there's these wise men who are traveling from the east. Their job, their job was to anoint kings. But now they know when they come because all the world was looking for an ultimate king, a, a king, a universal king, an ultimate king. And when they show up, they're saying, hey, you know what? We're coming here to worship him. We're coming here to anoint him. We're coming here to present to him gifts because he is the one. He is the one who is worthy. So their job of anointing lesser kings is insignificant compared to the gift that they're bringing to the ultimate king. And it's a reminder that our, that our kingdom, what, what our responsibilities, they exist for a season. I'm a parent of young children. Having those little kids in my house, it's for a season. Uh, your job, your job is a season. Your, your life, it's a season. 
your house. It's a season. Uh, our friendships. It's for a season. And when we come to the reality that my kingdom is limited, when I come to the reality that my kingdom is seasonal, when I come to the reality that me as a pastor, that I'm, I'm not even really a, the permanent pastor of New Life Baptist Church. I'm what we would call an interim pastor. An interim pastor, if you're not familiar with that, with that term, an interim pastor is someone who, he pastors in a, in a gap. So for example, uh, uh, so for example, I, I know of someone who recently, they, they stepped down from their church. They, they were not a pastor. And then someone stepped in as, a, as an interim pastor to be there for a little bit until the next pastor showed up. Well, in a sense, with all my heart, I believe God's going to have me here, hopefully, the rest of my life. But the reality is, is that my, my pastoral ministry has an end date. Someday, I will die. And there will be someone else. I'm a, my, my, my ministry is seasonal. The Millers, they, they want to go to Peru, and they want to go give their lives for the sake of the gospel in Peru. It's for a season. Because there will come an end date. And what we do with that reality uh, says a lot about what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Because what we see here as we walk through the text is that when Herod comes to this reality, uh, he goes crazy. It says in verse number three, it says, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He starts getting really nervous. And in fact, this was a common theme of Herod's kingdom was he was extremely paranoid. He was extremely fearful. Uh, on one hand, he had his brother-in-law executed because he was worried uh, that he would overthrow him. And then he had his wife executed. And then he decided since he had his wife executed, he didn't want a mother-in-law either. That one I can't blame him for. No, no, uh, so he had his mother-in-law executed. And then he had his he had three of his sons executed. In fact, Caesar even went on record saying that it was safer for it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. And he just started killing all of his family. He started killing everybody. Why? Because he was worried that they were a threat to his kingdom. He turned into such a mess and he turned into such a narcissist that at the end of his life, he was about to die and he ordered for some of the most popular people in Jerusalem to be arrested. And then he, had, he ordered for them, like his last order, one of his last orders was for those prominent loved citizens of Jerusalem to be executed the moment that he died to guarantee that there would be weeping in Jerusalem on the day of his death. That's how fearful, that's how narcissistic, that's how, that's how uh, self-absorbed Herod was. That's what happens whenever you come to the reality that you are not an eternal ultimate king. We see that Herod responds with fear and he's troubled and he's filled with self-centeredness and uh, ultimately what we're going to see next week is he's going to order the execution of every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem. That's what happens whenever you think that you're the ultimate God of your life. We cannot handle it. We cannot handle it. But what we see here is that these magi, they go looking for him. They go looking to worship. 
uh, the one who is born king of the Jews. So that is some truth about my kingdom, is that God has given my, me my kingdom for a reason. God has given me my kingdom for a season. And whenever I come into the reality of that season, what I process, when I process that, impacts the way that I, the way that I live that out. So that's some truth about my kingdom. Now I want you to notice a couple of truths about Jesus's kingdom. And through our study of Matthew, we're going to see a lot of things about Jesus's kingdom. But I want you to get these couple of things really, really quickly. In verse number six, they're looking for Jesus. They ask, where is Jesus? Where is the Messiah going to be born? And they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then here is the prophecy. It comes from Micah 5.2. Uh, and then the end of it actually talks a little bit, for, takes a little bit from 1 Samuel. But it says, And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That shall rule my people Israel. In verse 6, they say, hey, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem because of what it says, what, because of what Micah prophesied. And here are some things, whenever Jesus' birth is prophesied, Here's some things that we learn about Jesus's kingdom. And we're going to go through this really quickly. We're going to learn how should we respond. Uh, and then we will we'll wrap it up. So stick with me just a little bit longer. I'm sorry I took a little too long on that first part. Here's the two big things that we need to know. First of all, Jesus's kingdom is bigger than our kingdom. Jesus's kingdom is bigger than our kingdom. Here is the prophecy from Micah. Micah is prophesying prophesying that this great, ultimate, amazing Messiah, this great, incredible ruler, he's going to be born from a little, small, tiny, insignificant town. Which is really interesting because whenever you compare that to other kings, uh, we talked about Alexander the Great a couple of weeks ago. Alexander the Great was in a position of power whenever he started to rule and reign. He he, He was born into a lot of opportunity. Yeah, the prophecy about Jesus, this ultimate king, is he's going to come from a small town. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry and he started performing miracles and he started teaching, everyone said, hey, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of where Jesus is from? He's from such a backwoods town. Hey, how could he possibly make a difference? Yet what we're seeing is that, hey, Jesus's kingdom is not limited to where he comes from. He didn't need to be given things by human beings. His ultimate kingdom, his big kingdom, comes even out of a small, insignificant place like Bethlehem. It's bigger than our kingdom. He is, he's not just self-sufficient. I love the way that I heard this uh, in, a, in a podcast that I listened to yesterday. He's not just self-sufficient. He's super sufficient. He's super sufficient. He has has no need. He doesn't need you or me. That's what a great king he is. He's bigger. His kingdom is bigger, and his kingdom is better. His kingdom is better. Here's what it says in the text. It says that there will rise up a a governor, and it says that shall rule my people people Israel. Now, I want you to notice that word rule, and I had to do a little bit of background study on this, but the word rule, another way that it could be translated, and really the primary translation for this, is the word shepherd. It's the word shepherd. So whenever you read this, it says that there shall come a governor or a ruler that shall shepherd my people Israel. Here's what's amazing. Herod the Great, his kingdom, kill them. If they're a threat, kill them off. If they look at me the wrong way, kill them off. That's Herod's kingdom. Jesus' rule and reign, it says he'll shepherd. Maybe you're familiar with this. The Lord is my 
shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. That is the shepherd. That is the ruler that King Jesus is. That shall rule my people Israel. So whenever I acknowledge that my kingdom is limited, what I've been given is less than Jesus's ultimate kingdom, then it changes everything. So how do I, how do I live this out? How do I apply this out? I would say this. Take your kingdom and put it through the filter of God's. Here's what the wise men do at the end of the text. The wise men, they go to Jesus and they present him gifts. Remember I said at the beginning of the message, their job was to, was to anoint kings. Their job was to coronate kings. So what do they do? They come and they bring him gold and they bring him frankincense, they bring him myrrh. They use what they have been given. They do their jobs for the sake of Jesus's glory. They do their jobs for the sake of Jesus's glory. And that is your, that is your calling as well. That is my calling as well. And whenever I take my kingdom, whenever I take the things that I've been given by God and I put it through the filter of, God, this is not ultimately mine. This is ultimately yours. Then it changes everything. You all know that I love coffee. Uh, so I am just, give it to me all day long. Adriana got me turned on to that. Adriana in college, like one of her reports, she actually wrote a book on, on coffee. But you know, one of the things, one of the things that I think is really cool about coffee is that coffee actually doesn't start up like, well, maybe some of you people who buy instant coffee or something like that, I don't know how all that works. But like real coffee, how does it work? You take water. And I don't know about you, but in the morning, whenever I wake up and I'm groggy, I'm not saying give me a cold, a nice cold glass of water. No, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying I want to sit in my recliner and give me a cup of coffee. But what do you have to do to take to get coffee? You have to take water, and you have to put it through the filter of the coffee grounds. And whenever it starts going through the filter, it turns into something better. My friend, could I say this, that your life, your kingdom is like the water. It's good stuff, but it's not coffee. And whenever it starts going through the filter, it turns from something that is cold to something that is warming. It turns from something that is crisp to something that is will make you feel alive. And here's what happens whenever you take your job and you put it through the filter of God's kingdom, it's no longer just a job. It's a mission field. Whenever you take your marriage and you recognize that, hey, my marriage has been given to me by God to steward, it's not even anymore just a marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. Whenever you take your kids that you're raising and training, you're not just training children to be a part of, to be a functioning member of society. You're training world changers. 
Whenever you live your life, it's not just your kingdom. When you say, God, my kingdom is submitted to yours. God, I want you to be the ultimate ruler and reigner in my life. Then it absolutely takes what you have, that little insignificant kingdom that you have, and it transforms it into something that is beautiful, and it turns it into something that's amazing. Well, I don't know if I can do that. That sounds hard. How do I go and change my job from a job to a mission field? That's hard. Could I say to you, we see it in the example of this text. We see it in the person of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be made equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here, when Jesus presented these gifts, he's presented gold, the gift of royalty. He's presented frankincense, this gift of, uh, uh, this gift, frankincense was for the purpose of offering sacrifices. It's showing his priestly role. But then there's this gift of myrrh. Myrrh was an embalming fluid. Myrrh was used for burials. And when Jesus is presented these gifts, it's a reminder that Jesus left heaven's throne. Jesus left heaven's throne and he took a manger and he lived on it in a dusty world where he said that he didn't even have a place to lay his head and he did it as a sacrifice for you and for me. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was a sacrifice for God's ultimate purposes. And my friend, my challenge for you would be to surrender your kingdom to Jesus's and watch him transform it into something beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives and help us to be submissive to your rule and reign. In Jesus' name. If you would please keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, in just a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing a final song. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, um, would you come talk to me? I'd love to show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior. And then today I would say, are you submitted to Jesus? Are you submitted to Jesus? And if you're not, if there's an area that's not, submit to him today. Let's pray one more time and then we'll stand and sing. Father,